What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 55. It's titled, Are You Fragile or Anti-Fragile? Now, I might actually change the title by the time I record this, but that's my working title. So when you see the episode, if it has a different title, it's because I decided to change it. A couple weeks ago, I was biking in Grand Teton National Park. Every April, and again in October, the park system closes roads to cars in both Grand Teton National Park and Yellowstone. And so you can, you're free to bike around. And so I biked. And I remembered, as I was biking, a camping trip I took when I first moved to Idaho. It was about a year after we moved, and my brother-in-law invited my son and I, my two oldest sons and me, to, to go camping. And so we rented canoes, we canoed into the backcountry, we stayed along one of the lakes for about a week, and it, it was great to be off the grid. I distinctly remember getting back to the car after a week. And what do you do when you're, when you're off the grid? You check your cell phone to see if there was any critical messages. And I put the, I'd let all my clients know that I would be gone and when I would be back. And, and so I didn't really think there would be anything. I checked my voicemail and, and there were a number of somewhat frantic calls from several of my clients regarding the state of one particular investment manager and, in addition, a somewhat frantic call from that manager himself. This was not good news. It, I had two colleges in particular that I had used a particular manager. It was a college in the Pacific Northwest. It was a university endowment in the East, and this manager was of the genre that's called, they were enhanced index manager or a portable alpha manager. And I talked about enhanced indexing, portable alpha in episode 23. But just to summarize, what this manager would do is they were trying to outperform the U.S. large company stock index, the S&P 500, by just a slight margin. So by a half a percent or to a percent a year. And they had a very specific strategy. They would enter into futures contracts, and a futures contract essentially gets you exposure to a given asset class, but it's highly levered. So you don't need to, to if you had $100,000, you would need only a couple thousand to, or in a margin account to get a $100,000 worth of exposure to the S&P 500 index. And so instead of going out and buying all 500 companies, this manager would enter into futures contracts, and then they would take the rest of the assets that didn't need to be 
in the margin account or essentially the buffer to mark to market, they would go out and they would buy fixed income securities. And the way these these portable alpha strategies work or this enhanced index, if they could earn a sufficient return, say 2% on those bonds or 3%, that excess, that, that bond return essentially is additional alpha or additional excess return above what they're earning through the futures contract. It's a pretty vanilla strategy. I mean, it might sound complicated to explain, but that's what it was. Except that's not all this manager was doing. They were doing what they had labeled some enhancement strategies. And this was a mistake I had made in not quite understanding or probing deep enough what those enhancement strategies were. What they were doing is they were writing call options on the VIX volatility index. Let me explain what that means. An option is a right, but not the option, to buy something at a specified price in the future. So if you have, if you want to, I know individuals where I live that are always buying options on houses. So they'll sign a contract with a potential home seller because they want the land to develop perhaps for some type of apartment complex. And so they'll, they'll pay the, the owner of the land a small premium, and then they have the right to buy that property at some point in the future. And then who the, the owner of the house got the premium. That's what this manager was doing, except instead of a house, they were selling options or writing options. They were collecting premium income for options on the VIX volatility index. And what the VIX volatility index is, option, there, there are option contracts on the SP500, and those things are valued using something called a, or can be valued with something called the Black-Scholes model, which is essentially this model that is a quantitative model that uses a number of factors to determine, well, what is the value of the option? And one of those factors is, well, how long to maturity? Another factor is how volatile is the S&P 500? Because if you're, if you're buying an option and you want to buy a, have the right to buy, let's say, the S&P 500, at a level that's, let's say, 10% above what the S&P 500 is trading at right now. So your strike price, and so the strike price is the price at which the you can buy the index or you have the option to buy it. So you're 10% below that. So you want volatility. You want there to be ups and downs because a more volatile asset class, let's say small company stocks or an individual company, is going to be much more volatile than an index. And so the higher the volatility, the more pricey the option because you're more likely to hit that strike price. So what this VIX volatility is, it basically looks at the price of S&P 500 options and backs into what is the implied volatility. And by volatility, we're talking about the ups and downs of the market. And so this VIX 
over time has come to represent the implied volatility in stocks. And it tends to track pretty closely. So VIX right now is about 13 or 14. And, and which, so that VIX is really, it's a, a standard deviation measure, which we've talked about in earlier episodes. And it's basically the variability of the of the of the the particular asset around its average. So what the manager was doing, this manager was writing options against the VIX, which means they felt that VIX, the volatility S and P, was going to stay the same. And I think they were writing it at around seventeen or eighteen, and so. They would make money as long as volatility didn't spike. So that volatility stayed at 18, 17, 16, they, they were fine because then they just collected the premium. So this was just a simple income strategy, except what happened when VIX spiked to 60. There was something that spooked the markets and the volatility embedded into these option contracts spiked to 60. The manager was hurt. Now, they didn't lose. They, 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 weren't, you, they didn't write a ton of these. The idea was just to add some incremental return, let's say a half a percent or a quarter percent. They're just trying to get a little bit of excess return by writing these options. They felt it was conservative. It wasn't in the sense that what happened was with that spike in the VIX, they ended up losing about 2% relative to the SP500. So they trailed by 2%, which was not dastardly. But if you're an enhanced index manager trying to add a incremental return to lose 2 to 3% against your benchmark, and to do it in a way that they hadn't been transparent on how they were investing, they essentially blew up their firm. Clients, my clients fired them. Many, many clients fired them. I remember going to a meeting a couple months later. We had this manager in at the college back east to meet with the investment committee. He looked like heck. He just looked like he was living his worst nightmare because he was. He had made this decision in terms of how they're investing. Now, the technical term for what they were doing is they were short volatility. So the buyer of the option that wanted VIX or volatility to spike would be called long volatility. So their long volatility This manager was short volatility. They wanted stability. They needed stability. Stability didn't happen, and they were fragile. There's a book that I just reread, and it's it's one of the best books on investing that that I know, and it's called Anti-Fragile, Things That Gain from Disorder. It's by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. I've mentioned Taleb in earlier episodes. And he gives an example of what fragile means. Fragile is when the harm to you or an entity accelerates as bad things happen. In other words, that harm is is nonlinear. It doesn't move 
in a linear pattern. And this, this manager is an example. If VIX, the volatility, went from 15 to 30, the manager would have been hurt a little bit because he would have trailed his benchmark by, let's say, a half a percent. But as things, bad things got worse, so VIX went from 30 to 60, the harm to the manager accelerated. It wasn't that now he's losing 1%. It's that his losses are so great that his clients are leaving and he blew up his own company. He was fragile. He was short volatility. He wanted stability when stability wasn't there. He was experiencing what is known as negative asymmetry. He had more downside than upside. The upside to this strategy was a little bit of income. The downside was he was financially ruined. And when I saw him at that meeting, he definitely looked financially ruined. He was in his 50s. This was his, he and his partners, this was their investment firm, and it was crumbling in front of their eyes. Now, there are many things that are fragile, and the opposite of fragile, and this is a word that Nassim Nicholas Talib made up, is anti-fragile. If you're anti-fragile, you have positive asymmetry. There's more upside than downside. But let me give you another example of fragility. Back right after high school, I worked in a hotel restaurant in the kitchen. I was a dishwasher. This was a fine dining restaurant, so they had a lot of glass dishes. And my entire life, I had washed, our dishes were plastic. And we didn't, I don't think we had many glass dishes, maybe a few. So at the restaurant, it was a nice restaurant, so they serve champagne. And these champagne glasses had very long stems. And when you're washing dishes, you, you want to move quickly because you, you get the, the servers are bringing in these big trays or laying them on the dish counter. you got to go around the dish counter, clear them, put the cups up in these cup racks, put the plates, put the silverware in the silverware container. And I had to lift up with these champagne glasses and I would shove them in these racks, these plastic racks that we would use. They would hold the glasses and you would send the glasses through the dishwasher the automated dishwasher, and these racks. Well, these glasses were pretty fragile because if I moved too quickly, if I was too volatile in my motion, I found that the glass, the the rim of the glass or the base at the end of the stem would break off. And in my first few days, I don't know how many glasses I broke because I was moving too quick. These champagne glasses, were they wanted stability. They were fragile. They were short volatility. The more volatile I was, the more the glasses broke. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. If you're looking for a central location to get the key information on the markets, the pulse of what's going on, I can't think of a better spot than Yahoo Finance. I was just there. Could see very quickly what happened today, how stocks sank to end their worst month of 2024. I could see the actual market declines for the U.S., Europe, Asia, what interest rates did, commodities, currencies. I could see holdings of mine that I recently viewed and key headlines from leading financial publications all in one place, one screen at Yahoo Finance without any annoying pop-ups. 
Plus, with Yahoo Finance, you can get a consolidated view of all your investments and retirement accounts, all in one place. The key to investing is access to quality information, and you can get that at Yahoo Finance. They've completely redesigned the website. It's comprehensive, it's high quality, and it can help you with your investing. So for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Pearl and I recently had dinner with some friends who run a retail business. They have multiple stores and an online shop. And they recently used Shopify to better manage their inventory so they could ship online orders out of all of their stores instead of the warehouse. It helped them get a higher conversion rate on their website because of Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launcher online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers, just like it did for our friends. With the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com david, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com david now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash David. What's an example of something that's anti-fragile? Last week, I mentioned Henry David Thoreau and, and how I've been reading his journal from the 18, 1860s, so a couple years before he died. He goes over a number of pages where he he's, is spending his time out in the countryside. And one of the things that fascinated Tim is the clumps of trees. Why do pine trees seem to thrive in a certain area where he lived in Massachusetts and in other areas it was more oak or birch? And and he went on for several pages and trying to trying to figure out why what there was. And and he concluded maybe one reason the pines seem to do very very well in sandy soils, areas where he believed Native Americans had burned at one time to plant crops. So these were not necessarily the best soil. It wasn't the most fertile soil, but that's where these pine or conifer trees tended to thrive. Now, this struck me as I read that because it reminded me of a book I had read recently called, it was by Mark Spitznagel, who is a S-P-I-T-Z-N-A-G-E-L, who is a hedge fund manager. He wrote a book called The Tao of Capital, Austrian Investing in a Distorted World. And he was, he was talking in a roundabout way about fragility, and he never used the word anti-fragile, but he should have said, if he knew the term, conifers are anti-fragile. They like volatility, and here's why. Here's a quote from, from Spitznagel. He says, conifers can thrive in all types of soil, 
But in order to avoid direct competition for scarce resources, conifers retreat to inferior soil, wind-battered ridges, and low-lying areas where water collects, leaving the prime site to the fast growers. Conifers can tolerate significant temperature fluctuations. So they're in the rocky ground, the less optimal soil. But then they're waiting for an extreme event. They're waiting for volatility. And that extreme event is a wildfire. When a wildfire comes, when the angiosperms have overproduced, and so you have these packed angiosperms or deciduous trees all there, the grasses, a wildfire ensues, consumes them, and then the nutrients from that wildfire in the ground, there are both pine cones that are resin have are coated with resin that don't actually even germinate until a wildfire comes through and burns off some of that resin. The same time, the conifers that are up on the, the rocky ridges, their seeds can blow and they can land on that soil, and that's when they start to thrive, after the extreme event, after the volatility. Here's how Spitznagel puts it in this book. Through its adaptive strategies, talking about conifers, that has allowed it to survive over 100 million of years, the patient and persistent conifer teaches us that it is far better to avoid direct head-on competition for scarce resources, instead to pursue a roundabout path toward an immediate step that leads to its eventual position of advantage. Conifers waited back. They, they were long volatility. They, they were just patiently waiting for that extreme event. And then that's when they thrived and were able to take over the land of these where the, the former trees had been. Now, what about in our own lives? How do we know if we are fragile or anti-fragile? Well, think about it this way. So if you're, you're anti-fragile, if you benefit from volatility, from extreme events, you're fragile if your harm accelerates as bad things happen. So you have more downside than upside, you're fragile. You have more upside than downside, you're anti-fragile. Think about your situation, your current income. If you're, what happens if your income fell 20%? Today, So now you got a 20% pay cut versus a 20% raise. Would you experience greater benefit with the 20% raise? So would the benefit be even greater than the harm if you got a 20% pay cut? What about 50% pay cut? If you got a 50% pay cut versus a 50% raise, which would, would the benefit be greater than the harm or would be the harm be greater than the benefit? For many individuals, that harm accelerates. So as they go from a 20% pay cut to 50%, that is such an extreme event that they're forced into bankruptcy because they have such a tight budget, they have a lot of debt, they're highly leveraged. Debt is, leads to fragility, and you see this with companies. Highly leveraged positions can lead to bankruptcy. And, and that's sort of one way to look at, are, are you fragile 
or anti-fragile in terms of just your income. Now, you can also be fragile in terms of your investing. I look at my investment portfolio and I keep about 20 to 25% of my total net worth in in stocks. And I do that because I want to be anti-fragile. I know that if stocks fall 50% and I was 60 or 70% in stocks, I would be irreparably harmed because I'm early retired. And I can't afford that. And so I couldn't recover from that. That would be an extreme event. So I I try to min- minimize the downside by keeping to only 20 to 25%. Because then if markets fall 50%, my net worth is only hurt by 10%. And so I try to protect against the downside. But at the same time, I actually want volatility. I want variability in the markets because that's what gives me opportunities. As investors are panicking, as they get fearful, asset classes get undervalued. They get to extremes. I wait till they reverse, and that's when I enter. So I want that volatility, but I do it by protecting against the downside. That is the way to become anti-fragile. We, as Tyler puts it, we obsessively protect against the downside. So we want redundancies. We want buffers. We want insurance. We overcompensate. And if we can cut off the downside, protect against it, then we just can let the upside take care of itself. Because over time, with randomness, you have upside volatility and downside volatility. So you have things that go well and you have things that go bad. You try to cut off your, the, the bad and benefit from the good. What's an example of a buffer? Next week, we, my family and I are flying to Norway and Sweden. And we're flying from, we're driving down to, to Salt Lake and we're flying from Salt Lake to LA on Delta. And then we have a six o'clock flight to Oslo from LA on Norwegian Air Shuttle, which turns out to be a discount airline. I didn't realize that when we bought the tickets. So hopefully we're not too crowded in the airline. I had a choice to make. What time should we fly out of Salt Lake to get to LA? There were three or four flights. I could have chosen one where our layover was an hour. But instead, I chose a flight that left, leaves at 11. We have a six-hour layover in L.A. I built in a buffer because I wanted to protect myself from the downside. If there's any problem with that Delta flight, there's a window so we don't miss the Norwegian flight. Because since we're not all on the same airline, if we miss the Norwegian flight, we, got, we have serious problems. Because I'm sure that they're, at this point, they're, they're booked and it could be days until we get the flight. So our downsides protect. We have a buffer. But what are we going to do at the airport? Well, I, we can rent a car. We talk about renting a car and going find a nice Korean barbecue truck or something to do to use the time. But we can experience it. So if the plane arrives early, we, we have all this upside, this buffer, this time to go out and enjoy ourselves and not have to worry about the downside if the plane is late. Now, up to a point. If the plane's canceled, we have, I mean, you could have extreme events, Right, which were completely unpredictable, and even though you have the buffer, it could be be hurt. And so that's why when we're 
anti-fragile, always worried about our exposure. And we're trying to make sure that we've overcompensated, that we've put in redundancies in a portfolio, that we've set up an allocation that is conservative enough that we're not harmed irreparably. We want to be, we don't want to be short volatility. We don't want to be disproportionately impacted or harmed by things that go bad. Now, in the financial markets, there are what Talib calls black swans. And black swans are unpredictable extreme events. And they are inherent in complex adaptive systems where you have all these linkages, you have all these hidden connections that you don't see. We try to reduce our exposure to extreme events, some of which we don't even know. And you do that by, I've talked about hedge fund managers in the past, that hedge. And you ask them what they're hedging for. And they say, we don't know what we're hedging for. We're just hedging for things that we can't even anticipate. That's what we need to do in our own lives. Now, Tyler also talks about gray swans, which are events that at least have some indicators. And so an example is looking at investment conditions. Market conditions are indicators of market sell-offs that a company like a cyclical bear market or a secular bear market, market sell-offs, some You can't predict the exact week or the month, but you can look at some of these conditions to to know what you can be. So you have these black swans, these extreme events you, you definitely can't know, and you have these gray swans where you at least have some visibility that risk of a downturn are increasing. And so when I invest, I kind of weigh both of them. I'm extremely paranoid about black swans, protected against it, but trying to take advantage and of gray swans, either protecting myself or when they occur, to be opportunistic, to be long volatility. Now we're 26 minutes in and there's more on this anti-fragile concept that I want to apply, not just to the financial markets, but to our own lives. And so I'm going to do... We'll do another episode. So this is episode 55, episode 56. We'll continue the discussion. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. And there you can sign up for my insider's guide. I'll email those show notes to you. You can also, if you want to explore these concepts in more detail, this idea of gray swans versus black swans. On the Money for the Rest of Us hub, I just released the May Investment Conditions Report. And in there, I rank valuations. I rank the economic trends, and I rank market internals, and I rank them either green for go, yellow for caution, red for danger, each of those. Right now, valuations are yellow, and they have been, but I just reduced the economic trends based on the most recent release of PMI data and other indicators from green to yellow. And market so market internals remain green, economic trends are yellow, valuations are yellow, and so I've adjusted my allocation based on that. And so you can explore how I do that in more detail. So you can adjust your and manage your exposure to these gray squans on the moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode is for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. I'm simply providing 
general education on money, investing, and the economy. If you have a question, go ahead and email me, jd at jdavidstein.com. Thanks to all of you that have left reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. I do very much appreciate the feedback. Have a great week.